That is the difference between a really strong application form and an application form that has potential, is that ability to make sure that every answer is linking back to why you're going to be a good barrister. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. This episode is sponsored by the University of Law. What really sets the University of Law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic, professional and contemporary context. They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place with them. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. Stephanie, what is one of the biggest challenges that you face when writing law essays at university? Well, Camilla, it takes such a long time to gain a deep understanding of the area of law I'm focusing on and to work out what the key arguments are in order to critically analyse the topic. It often involves spending countless hours reading lots of books. I just wish there was a simpler way. It's funny you say that because our awesome sponsor, Bloomsbury Publishing, has a book series called Great Debates in Law, which explores the key debates and controversies in different areas of the law, all written by experts in their field. That sounds perfect. Where can I find out more about this book series? Head over to bloomsbury.com and for a limited time only, they are offering listeners of the podcast 20% off any book in the series by using the code GREATDEBATES20 and you can find the details in the description box of the podcast. Welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast Series. My name's Camilla and I'm a future trainee solicitor and current LPC student at the University of Law. And in today's episode, we are joined by Emmeline Davis, a future pupil barrister starting her pupillage in October 2022. You may also recognise Emmeline from her Instagram, Bristolian underscore barrister. In this episode, we'll be learning about Emmeline's journey to securing pupillage and finding out Emmeline's top tips for pupillage applications and interviews. So make sure you stick around to the end of the episode to hear all of that. Without further ado, let's hand over to Emmeline. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I wondered if you could kick off the episode by telling the listeners a little bit about your education and career history so far. Absolutely, yes. So I didn't have what I think people consider a traditional um, education when it comes to being a barrister. I didn't go to a private school. I went to a state school for a primary and secondary school. Uh, I didn't get straight A's. I think I got something like 12 B's and four C's. I think that I was quite an all-rounded student. So I did take my studies seriously, but also I liked to engage in sort of theatre. So I would write musicals and put those productions on. And I also enjoyed arranging trips to Parliament and things like that. So I think that's where my interest in law began. I I was really interested in Parliament and sort of how laws were made. So when I went to sixth form, I decided that I would do law and politics because I found them both very interesting. And also I would do English and theatre because that was what I was passionate about at the time. And then when I started doing law, I just loved it. I really found it to be enjoyable to take these fact patterns and take the law and apply it and critically analyse how the law would likely apply to those facts to predict an outcome 
And it was from there, really, that I decided that I was going to go on to university and study law. So I did um, uh, LLB at UE, so the University of the West of England in Bristol. And I did that sort of traditionally. And then I did the BPTC part time. And the reason that I did it like that is because I don't know any anybody in the legal profession. And so whilst I did do sort of mooting and debating and mini pupillages while I was doing my undergraduate degree, I felt like I could do with some more networking, especially in Bristol, because that's the area I wanted to practice in. So I decided to do the BPTC part time and get a litigator role. So it's also a paralegal role. Um, some people might know it as a fee earner, but essentially I was involved in conducting litigation and I did that full time while I studied part time. I had to defer the BPTC actually for two years in between my first and second year because I had glandular fever and chronic fatigue. And that absolutely knocked me for six. And I remember thinking that it was the end of the world <laughs> and I'd never get pupillage, especially because when I started my second year again, I was still recovering. So I couldn't sit all of my exams at once. So it meant that I really did take the full five years to finish the BPTC. And I just wanted to actually share that with your listeners, because I think that there is a fear, especially within the legal profession, that chambers won't want sickly people. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think it was something that maybe my imposter syndrome got the better of me because I really worried about that. And I was very honest about that in my application forms. And I was very honest about that in my interview. And I even used it as an example of when I overcame adversity. And everyone seemed to be quite understanding and supportive. So I just wanted to share that chapter particularly because I remember it felt like the weight of the world on my shoulder at the time. And now I'm out at the other end. I, I really didn't need to worry. So I thought that might help someone <laughs> out there. So I thought it would be good to share. And where I am at the moment, I'm still a litigator and I've been doing that for six years now. I'm also a county court advocate and a lecturer at UE. So I do quite a few different things. Well, that's such an interesting career path. Um, I think it's I think it's amazing how when you were at sixth form, you decided to do law, politics and theatre. I think um, that's a really interesting mix. And I really like the fact that you did theatre because I've yeah, I've heard that acting and, and things like that can really help with advocacy skills and help you to develop those skills that you need to be a barrister so I was just interested did you know that you wanted to be a barrister at that point or was that just your natural interest that you were kind of pursuing and then you realized later on that hang on a minute the things that I'm passionate about do lend themselves to the role of a barrister yeah so I think it was more so that I was passionate about theatre um I'd always liked musicals my gran used to take me to the theatre to watch musicals so I was always a little bit of um as a musical theatre fan but when I started studying law I really knew I wanted to do it I, I just thought it was something I could see myself doing and one of my tutors were really supportive of me and they knew that I didn't come from sort of a family that had connections with legal professionals and they selected me to to represent the sort of sixth form and go to an open day at Guildhall Chambers in Bristol and um, I think it was from that point that I realised I wanted to be a barrister. And I think it was sort of at that point that I realised that my interests and my passions lent themselves well to a career at the bar. So with acting, for example, you have to learn a script. So you have to <laughs> have a discipline there. You also have to attend dance rehearsals and all of the rest of it when you're tired and you're muscles are aching but you still have to have that resilience and that determination again things that are really important for sort of a career at the bar and also you have to learn to project your voice and to play around with your tone and your pace and things like that so yeah I think I was quite lucky in that what I wanted to do and my passions went together pretty well so I, I think it was a happy accident really. I'm so glad that you've t shared that story because I think it's really important to know that things don't have to go completely to plan for you to be able to get privilege at the end. You know, life happens. That's why you can do the BPTC or the BPC. 
as it's now called in five years because you know things happen and um you know as long as you explain what's happened on, on your application then it shouldn't be held against you so yeah I'm, I'm really happy that you shared that no no worries and uh, what was your journey like to securing a pupillage so I didn't realise that before you even start the BPTC, you could apply for pupillage. So I kind of probably went in a bit of bright eyed, bushy tailed, but without all of the information. And then when I was on the BPTC, sort of because I had that ill health, I decided that I wasn't going to apply during the BPTC. I wanted to get my grade so that I didn't have to justify my ill health through sort of words and I could just show that I made the right decision by having a good grade and having some litigation experience. And I hoped by that point, I'd also have more advocacy experience. And then my first time applying for pupillage was when I came out of the bar and it was in 2020 and I'd done all of the application forms. I think in Bristol, there wasn't that many opportunities available. And also I, I, at that point, I kind of didn't want to spread myself too thin and I thought it would be better to do fewer applications and do them very well. And then if I got some interviews, I would know that the application was good. And then if I wasn't successful that first year, the second year I can kind of apply to more places because I've got a good template with my application form. So I applied to three. And then of the three, I got two interviews offered and then the pandemic hit and one of the interviews unfortunately was cancelled uh the other one went ahead it you know I don't think it went badly but I didn't get pupillage sadly um I found it really difficult to do an interview via zoom it wasn't something I'd ever done before as with a lot of people and I just felt like I couldn't really get my personality across very well so I found that round particularly difficult um and then so I went to my second round of applications which was in 2021 and I made six applications that year I think I got offered five first round interviews um, four final round interviews and no offers Um, and I thought it was it for me but I did get made first reserve and so they tell you on the Friday morning that you get made reserve they give you a phone call and explain And then I had to wait the whole day. It felt like the longest day in the world. And at five o'clock, I got the phone call to say that the other candidate had accepted the place. So no offers. Um, And obviously I was disappointed, but I thought I must be doing something right because I've got through to lots of interviews and, you know, I got I got made a reserve. That means that they thought I was good enough. Just someone picked me to the post. So it gave me a lot of confidence. And then I think about half an hour after that, Chambers called me back and said that they'd been given a scholarship for an additional pupillage and that they liked me and they'd like to offer it to me if I was willing to wait until October 2022. So, of course, I said yes. And again, I just wanted to be completely transparent about that experience because, you know, that just didn't seem like something that would be possible when it happened. So I think that it's important to share that because a lot of people will be told, keep going, you'll get there, you'll get there. Mm. And I really agree with that message. I've heard people say, you know, it's not fair to tell people that if they keep trying, they'll get there because the sort of statistics say they won't. But what's the alternative? If you tell, if you don't tell people that message, that, that might deter them and they might give up. And absolutely, the odds are not in our favour, but there is a little bit of luck in with it. So I think you have to keep trying because if you don't keep trying and you don't keep going for it, then you definitely won't get it. But if you keep trying with good preparation, with sort of good grades, good experience, you know, all of the sort of things that you're meant to do and a little bit of luck, hopefully you should make it that was certainly my experience so I I disagree when people say that you 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 know you shouldn't keep telling people keep going you'll get there because if you don't tell people that then that discourages them and if you're from sort of a non-traditional background again we've spoken about imposter syndrome but it can definitely deter people 
they can put themselves off the career. So, you know, you need to remind people that it's important to be resilient in this profession. And that if you do keep going and you keep doing the right things and you're getting through sort of to interview stage and final round interviews, and if you're being made reserve, you know, with a bit of luck, you will get there in the end. So you have to keep trying. I think it's really important to share that because I remember when I first left university, I thought that getting rejection was the worst thing in the world. And it actually, like the thought of rejection actually scared me to the point where I didn't want to make any applications because I knew rejections were going to be inevitable. But, um, you know, like you've shown through your experiences, rejections aren't necessarily a bad thing. And as long as you're getting better, like you said, and improving that 1% with every application, then you're going in the right direction and eventually you will become a very strong applicant. And if you don't already have a really good chance, then you will definitely start to develop the skills and the application writing abilities to make you a very strong app um, and make you a very strong applicant. So I, I completely agree that not giving up is definitely so important. And I remember a pivotal moment for me was hearing that um, someone made 100 applications and got their training contract on the 100th application or something like that. So I thought, okay, I'll give myself 100 tries. And if I don't give it, get it within that period of time, I'll think about giving up. Luckily, I didn't need to make 100. I just had to make 35. But um, yeah, that story really kind of gave me motivation. So I think that if anyone listening resonates with your story, then hopefully they'll get the motivation and encouragement that they need to continue making applications because it's so competitive. Rejection is inevitable. And as long as you're getting better and developing your writing skills, and that's something that we're going to come on to later in this interview because, Emily, your conversion rate was so good. Um, you know, you're, you're getting past that written application stage so many times, so you're obviously very good at writing applications. So we're definitely going to ask you a bit later on in the interview how you managed to do that. Um, but my next question is, what was the biggest challenge you faced when applying for pupillage and attending interviews and how did you overcome these challenges? So I think the biggest challenge is the knowledge that the odds are not in your favour. So really interesting when I first went to my introductory weekend at Lincoln Zim the activity that they made you do was you would sit on the chair and I think that they must have put sort of card different color cards on people's chair and they said everyone in the room stand up if you don't have a card on your chair sit down and everyone sat down and then you looked round, and it was like this many of you will pass the bar and it was like kind of less than half the room and then they said, if you had a green card, sit down. So everyone else sat down and there was maybe kind of 10, 15 people left standing. And they said, this is how many of you will get pupillage. Uh, and that was shocking. And I think that stuck with me. And so I think that already puts you in a mindset that this is going to be an uphill struggle. And I think that you know, I wish I would have known that maybe before <laughs> I paid the £15,000 to do the BPTC um, to know how difficult it was going to be and that there was this risk that that investment that I made in myself wouldn't pay off and I wouldn't get pupillage. So I think that it was very daunting and that was the biggest challenge to kind of put that fear aside and think to myself, no, I've worked hard enough, I've got a scholarship, so that must mean that someone on that panel thought I had potential to become a barrister. I've done all of the things that I was supposed to do. I've gone and done the mini pupillages. I've done the mooting. I've done the debating. I've gone on internships. I've got good grades. So I'm in a good place. It's what I want to do. And I can't be put off by other people. I can't be put off by the statistics. I have to pursue my dream. And if it doesn't work out, if I crash and burn, at least I know I did my best and I didn't give up on myself. So I think that was my biggest challenge, actually, knowing how hard it was going to be and pushing myself to do it anyway and not to be deterred. And, you know, I think that that's probably a big struggle for a lot of people. I think that maybe people like me went 
went in very optimistic and when they see those sort of stats and figures it leaves them feeling a bit deflated so to kind of pick yourself back up and motivate yourself and have that resilience and the tenacity to keep going it's essential uh, for a career at the bar you have to have that sort of attitude but I think that that was probably one of the biggest things that I needed to overcome and I guess the way that I did it was instead of focusing on the hurdle I focused on the end goal and trying to get there that is great advice thank you so much for sharing that um I think when you go into it you don't necessarily know how competitive it it is I don't think they really or at least at my university I just didn't realize that when you left university it it was just like a whole new ball game I thought you'd come I'd come out with a law degree and having job offers (laughs) a bit naive there um probably should have done a bit more research but, <laughs> I was in the yeah. same boat, absolutely. I, it, with hindsight, I feel like I should have maybe looked into all of these things a bit more before I invested all of the money I have on education. But, you know, I, I think that universities could definitely do better in providing that information. Um, I, I think that it's important information and I don't think that it is really fair for students, especially in that early um, sort of stage of their career, to have to really hunt for the information I think it should be readily available I completely agree I completely agree with that and what skills do you think um, are important for aspiring barristers to, to develop and how can students and graduates start developing these skills yeah so I'm going to say advocacy which I think is very obvious but I think it's actually a very difficult one to develop before you get onto the BPTC because I was a person, as I said, I've got a background in theatre, so confident speaking, confident in public, no problem. When I was on my undergraduate, I do group presentations, I do solo presentations, I would do projects and sort of pitches, no problemo, that was all fine. But advocacy just feels like a different ball game because I guess you think the judge knows more than you. (laughs) So I think that when you're sort of presenting something to an audience, you know that the questions are likely going to come at the end and it's likely going to be on something that you've delivered so you should know the answer to. Whereas I think with advocacy, often the judge, and we do know in mooting and things like that, it's, it's kind of not a real judge, but nevertheless, it's usually someone who's a bit more experienced than you and a bit more knowledgeable than you. So that can be quite daunting. And I don't think that there's many opportunities that you can really prepare for that other than getting involved with mooting and competitions and things of that nature. So I think that advocacy is one that you really need to develop because whether you're someone who's going to be in court and doing verbal advocacy or whether you're going to be someone who writes opinions so you're doing written advocacy um, or written submissions sorry rather than opinions you know you still need to have that ability to be persuasive and to put your points across so I think that advocacy is one that you definitely need to develop as a skill and I think some of the ways in which you can get involved in that at an early stage is through mooting and also doing many pupillages and maybe just going to court you know you can go and sit in the public gallery at court and just watch an advocate because I do believe that we learn by doing and I I really suggest that people put themselves out there in safe environments you know it's so much better to do a moot and crash and burn than it would be to kind of (laughs) do a real life case for the first time and crash and burn so I think that it's best to put yourself in these sort of situations in safe learning environments where if if you make a mistake, the worst that's going to happen is that you learn from it. Whereas, you know, in practice, I'm not saying people don't make mistakes. They do. And there is indemnity insurance specifically for that reason, because people are human and they will make mistakes. And that's fine. But I think if you can put yourself in situations like mooting um, and if you can really throw yourself into your BPTC and your advocacy assignments, and any preparatory classes that you have for those assignments, that will really help you with your advocacy skills. And then I think one that everyone should work on, whether you wanna be a barrister or solicitor or any sort of professional really, is your interpersonal skills. And I think all students and people can develop that skill. 
and again I think it's about putting yourself in situations so throughout my undergraduate I did work in retail so sometimes I kind of would work on weekends but then as I started to get further into my education I actually did more hours and I found that that was really helpful to me to be able to build my interpersonal skills because I was coming into contact with a wide range of people from all walks of life and I was finding ways to converse with them and have conversations with them and find out about their interests and be able to help them in my role so I think that that's really important for whatever job you decide to go into but it's essential for being a barrister because everybody can find themselves in the circumstances where they need a barrister so whatever your sort of situation is you might have difficult neighbours you might have a, a family breakdown you might unfortunately find yourself in a car accident or you might find yourself accused of a crime whatever the sort of type of legal matter is most people at some point in their life will need a lawyer and so that means as a barrister you're going to come into contact with people from all walks of life so the more you can put yourself in situations where you're sort of in retail or hospitality or if you're doing volunteering all of those experiences whatever works best for you being in those situations really allow you to develop those interpersonal skills which will help you at life at the bar whether that's with clients or whether it's networking with other lawyers it's just a really important skill to have. So I really recommend those two skills. And I think it's something that everyone can work on, even from their undergraduate. I really like that because I think uh, retail experience is, is probably something that people wouldn't necessarily think you could sort of sell as an experience to become a barrister. Um, but it's great to hear that, um, you know, it's not just mooting, but it can be other jobs as well that where you can develop your advocacy and speaking to people and your interpersonal skills. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and so, OK, imagine we have a student who has been at university, um, you know, done lots of mooting, uh, worked in various uh, different places and they have all these experiences to talk about how do they actually sell these experiences and skills in the pupillage application form okay so I'm a very methodical person <laughs> um, and what I start by doing before I even touch the application form is I do a bit of a skills audit so I write down all the skills that a barrister needs to have and the reason I do this is because what you're trying to convince the panel is that you're going to be a good barrister. So first of all, you need to establish what makes a good barrister. So what skills and attributes they need. So you make a list of that and then you tick off every one that you have. And then I rearrange the list in terms of what's my strongest skill down to what's my weakest skill. And then next to each of the skills, I put an experience so that I can sort of demonstrate each of those skills. And then when I come to the application form, I try and weave all of those skills throughout my CV section, my answer section, so that I, I leave the panel in no doubt that I'm going to be a good barrister because I have the skills and attributes that a barrister needs. And then the way that I demonstrate on that on the form, so, you know, it only takes you halfway to say, I have this skill. You need to also be able to demonstrate that you have that skill or attribute. So the way in which I do that is I use the STAR technique and it stands for situation, task, action, result. So to give you an example, I suppose, I might say that I have emotional intelligence and the way that I would demonstrate that in a form using the STAR technique would be to say, during a mini pupillage, I knew that I was attending a conference in relation to a family breakdown. And from reading the documents, it was very, very clear to me that it was going to be emotionally charged and that the client was very upset about it all. So I, I anticipated that she might have some tears and I therefore brought with me some tissues. When we were in the conference, she actually did 
become very tearful and there was no tissues in the room so luckily I had the tissues to hand and I offered her a tissue and I think that really helped because she realised that it was perfectly normal for her to have those feelings. I think it actually validated her that you know we weren't shocked and taken aback that she was crying we understood this was difficult for her this was upsetting for her and of course she's going to show emotion about that and I think that helped her one feel more comfortable comfortable with us and confident and then that also allowed her to open up a little bit more and I did get really good feedback from the barrister on that case as well so I think what that kind of shows is how you do the star technique. So the situation would be the mini pupillage. The task would be the conference. The actions that I took would be to read the brief, understand the brief and sort of emotional elements of it, to prepare myself by taking a tissue and where appropriate offering the client a tissue. So those were sort of the actions. And then the result would be the client feeling more comfortable to open up. And the reason that you do that is because it elevates your answer from a mere puff and saying, I have emotional intelligence, to really demonstrating it and leaving the panel in no doubt that you do. And so that's the way in which I tackle it. And once I've done that, I go back through and read the application form and I kind of go back to that skills audit. And every time I've mentioned the skill and done the star technique, I tick it off. And then if there's sort of one skill that I might have spoken about three times, but then a skill that I've spoken about not at all, I'll try and use an example of the, the skill I've not mentioned in place of one of the ones that I've mentioned numerous times, because I think, again, it shows that I'm balanced and all-rounded and that I've got all of the skills necessary to become a barrister. So it is very methodical <laughs> and it, it is time-consuming, but it works for me and I have had some success in my application, so I think it works well. I think what is really important in, in the, the way that you've done that is actually how detailed you've gone. Um, so I suppose the STAR technique really helps you bring out that detail. And I think that's what actually makes your answers come alive. Before we get into the second half of the episode, I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the sponsors of today's show and the law school that I chose to study my LPC at, and that's the University of Law. The University of Law believes in training students for the real world from the moment they accept a place. Their experienced career service and award-winning pro bono clinics offer students the chance to get real-life experience from the start. They offer a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. To find out more about the courses on offer, click the link in the description box of the podcast. And I know from our previous discussion when we were setting up the podcast that you've that you've done some like mock interviews for people, and I'm not sure if you've also uh, you know had a sort of look over people's application forms. But I, but I wondered if there was any common errors and pitfalls to avoid in the application form. Maybe something that you've come across a few times, or or something that you've actively tried to avoid doing yourself. Yeah. So. I have looked over people's application forms and I think you've gathered from my process. I look over my own application form a lot as well. And I think some of the most common pitfalls is spelling and grammar. And unfortunately, with competition being so fierce, that will get your application put in the bin. So something that I discovered and learned about when I was going through the process of the application form myself was on Word, you have a read aloud function. So the read aloud function. I found really useful and I would use that to listen back to my application because the problem is when you write something you know what you mean and if you've written it and you read it enough times you can't pick out your mistakes because you know what you meant so if you have it read back to you you can hear a mistake easier than you can see it on the page when you look over it so that was definitely something that I noticed in application forms was spelling and grammar and it was it was true of my own as well I was definitely not perfect in that respect but that's definitely a tool that I used to help me and I think also I find and I, I did this as well <laughs> that you 
decide what you think a barrister should sound like. And so you start writing in this way and it loses your personality. It loses your character. And you don't want that because when it comes down to it, you know, if you have done all the right things and if you are the sort of candidate that is going to be a good barrister, when it comes to the sort of decision that chambers make between two people that are both perfectly capable of being good barristers, it often does come down to who who the sort of pupil supervisor can see sharing an office with. And if your personality isn't shining through, then you're likely to fall at that hurdle because they're going to pick the person that they can see as more personable and that they can see themselves sharing an office with and not being annoyed by um, or bored by. I know that that's really unfair, I suppose, because we're taught to kind of meet all of these requirements and, and do all of this extracurricular activity. And no one really says about making sure that your unique selling point is you and make sure that you let your character shine through. And sometimes you can be ridiculed for who you are. So I've called myself the Bristolian barrister and that wasn't by mistake. I used to get ridiculed for my accent. I used to get kind of um, told to speak properly and I'd need to lose the accent if I wanted to be successful. And uh, I think on one occasion I was specifically told that if I do want to be a barrister, I probably should stay in Bristol because it's probably the only place that my accent would would fit in. So, you know, I think that actually sometimes we're told not to be ourselves and we are told to be more of this image of what a barrister should be. But I really advocate to make sure that your application sounds like you and that your personality is shining through. And so get get a family member or relative, someone who knows you, friend, whoever, uh, to read the application and to make sure that your personality is coming through and that you sound like yourself, really. And I think I, I think that those are. No, actually, I tell a lie. There is another common mistake that I find, and that is that people don't answer the question. So they answer the question as being asked, but people forget every question on that form really is asking you, why are you going to be a good barrister? So don't just answer the question, always have in mind the underlying question. So if it says to you, tell us a time that you've overcome a, ch overcome a challenge, do tell them about the time that you've overcome a challenge, but explain to them or demonstrate to them why that makes you a good barrister. That is sort of the difference between a really strong application form and an application form that has potential is that ability to make sure that every answer is linking back to why you're going to be a good barrister. Okay, that's interesting because um, I had my applications checked a couple of times by mentors and sometimes I would get the advice to, like you said, link it back to why I would be a good barrister. And then some people would say they're not asking you that in this question, so sort of take that out. Um, so I was never quite sure about which which way to go with, with it. And I think I changed my my approach a few times. And I found success with both, I think. But um, I, I do agree with you. I do think that linking it back makes it for a, a stronger argument as to, you know, why you would be a good barrister. So is that what you would do then? Link it back like with a, just a sentence at the end to say, and that's why I'd be a good barrister because of X, Y, Z. Um, is that what you did? A lot of the answers I would make sure that I... Yeah. I did that not all of them because some of the questions are very clear on that point some of the questions are why are you going to be a good barrister so in answering the question you are answering the underlying question in that one but I think where the one in in the sort of questions where it wasn't so clear that that's what they were driving at that's the ones that I specifically made sure that I, I brought it back to that point because again that's part of advocacy that's part of being persuasive when you're before court every submission and every point that you're making should lead the judge to the conclusion that you're entitled to what you're asking for. And so it's the same with a written application. Every point that you're making should convince the panel that you're going to be a good barrister. And if it doesn't, if, if the point you're making doesn't do that, take it out because you're wasting words. So I don't know that you have to be so obvious as to say and this is why I'm going to be a good barrister but you need to make sure that when you read that question back 
or the answer back, sorry, it's abundantly clear that you're going to be a good barrister. And so I, I think where the answer didn't make that necessarily obvious, I'd maybe add the sentence. But I think if it, if it jumped off the page, then I would not necessarily spell it out that that's why I'm going to be a good barrister. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and I, I really liked how you approached it as a piece of written advocacy and tried to be as persuasive as you can. I think that's, I think that's such a good approach. So what was the pupillage interview like? And what are your tips for preparing for a pupillage interview? So I didn't, as I said, I didn't apply for pupillage during my BPTC year. But I did take full advantage of the opportunity to have a forum looked at and a mock interview. I think I did one with the university and one with my inn. And I remember feeling in those interviews like I was on The Apprentice and it was the interviews that they do with, <laughs> uh, at the end of The Apprentice before they get hired or fired. And it really felt like that. It felt so grueling. It, it felt really intense. But I do think that's because I wasn't very prepared um, and because I was just really trying to give myself the opportunity to see what it's like. And so I think once I had come away and I realised what the process was actually like and what it was going to be like, I then prepared. And once I prepared for the, um, the interview, sorry, once I did that preparation, I then felt more confident going into the interviews. And I must say, the nerves that I had and the anxieties that I had, which were all natural, I think, but preparing for the interview, none of the interviews were as bad as I thought. And even the ones where I wasn't successful, I came away feeling very happy. And I, I felt that, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say they were enjoyable, but they certainly weren't anything uncomfortable or unpleasant. I felt that maybe it's a reflection of the chambers I chose, because I, I did make sure that I chose sort of sets that had a good reputation for being friendly and approachable. And so I think on that basis, that's how they came across with me. But in terms of the actual interviews themselves then, just to give people an idea of what they look like, it's difficult because they vary so much. And I don't think that Chambers are particularly transparent about what interview process they're going to adopt. So there was some Chambers where I didn't really even appreciate that there was only one round there wasn't two rounds of interview there was only one and you don't really know that until sort of at the end of the interview when you asked so I think that there could be a lot more transparency by chambers as to what process they're going to run but generally speaking I found that sort of first round interviews were either an advocacy exercise where you got the papers the day before the day of the interview maybe an hour before the interview then you did your preparation and you did the advocacy and then there was no questions about sort of competency or anything like that. It was really just all about the piece of advocacy or it was interviews that were wholly about competency and your application form and there was no advocacy element. And then sort of the second round interviews were more what you'd anticipate. So it was kind of an advocacy exercise that maybe took 20 minutes. You might've got the exercise the day before or a few hours before the interview. And then there was a competency-based element. And I think the thing that people may not anticipate having in those pupillage interviews, which really comes up in most interviews, is ethics questions. So if you're on the bar course, you're probably in a really good position because that's all fresh in your mind. If you've not done the bar course, I do suggest maybe having a look at the BSB handbook and some of the key competencies, just make yourself aware of that. Because if you've been offered to interview, it's likely that Chambers is aware and appreciates that you're not on the course yet. So they're just looking to see that you understand the core duties of a barrister. And if you finish the BPTC, refresh your memory, read your notes, just so that you're prepared for those questions. And I think that's really what the interviews look like. And as I said, I think that actually most interviews I went to everyone was perfectly pleasant and, and it wasn't as bad as I, I built up in my mind. So I, I think that it can be quite daunting, but actually once you get there, be confident in yourself that you've done enough preparation. And if you have, it will certainly feel easier for you when you're in the interview. And maybe 
the reason I felt that way actually is because I did do mock interviews. So as I said, I did it with the university. I did it with the inn. I also contacted some people who had just obtained pupillage and they were able to give me a mock interview based on what they had just gone through. So that was really helpful as well. And that's what I'm trying to do now with some of my mentees and, and people that reach out to me. I do mock interviews and I mean, I do ask the most difficult questions that I was asked. And I think the reason being is when I went into the interview myself, I was very prepared and I'd gone online and I found all of the most difficult questions that I could anticipate. And again, I asked other people who had just been through the process what the most difficult questions they were asked and I prepared answers to those questions so when I do the mock interviews I purposely choose the questions that I think that students would not have found or anticipated because the more prepared you are the better and the easier the process is but equally you do still have to have enough confidence and flexibility to think on your feet so I think that essentially the interviews aren't that bad if you're very well prepared and if you're able to think on your feet. That's such good advice. I think I did something similar, just prepared for all the most difficult questions. And then, you know, you don't really get that many in one interview. So if they give you, if you prepare yourself for all the worst ones, um, actually, when you go into the interview, you find it not as hard as you have probably practiced for but yeah I think I think that's fantastic advice um and so you mentioned there that you now conduct um mock interviews for people who are trying to obtain pupillage now um so I wondered if if there are any common mistakes or pieces of advice that you kind of give to um interviewees or mistakes that they make um that you could share with our listeners so that they're kind of kind of maybe a bit prepared and can know if there are any common errors that they're also making themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So to be transparent, all of my interviews were online and not in person. And all of the mock interviews that I've been carrying out at the moment are online and not in person because I've got people um, that I mentor up and down the country and it just wouldn't be feasible to meet up with them all for, for mock interviews. And also I think that most chambers, even though we're coming out of the pandemic and the restrictions and people can go to interview now, I find that chambers are still doing Zoom or Teams interviews, I think it's a good thing because I think it's promoting accessibility to the bar. Um, you know, it's quite costly if you have to travel up and down the country for interviews. So I think it's good that they're that they're kind of using online and remote where they can. And it's also in line with practice at the moment because still a lot of courts are using online facilities. So a lot of this feedback is going to be tailored to, in fact, all of the feedback, I'm going to be honest, is tailored to that. I think... The first bit of advice that I would give is make sure that however your computer set up, it looks like you're giving eye contact to the panel. Because I've noticed when I've done some mock interviews, especially where people have two screens, they might be looking at the panel on the top screen. But if your camera's on the bottom screen, it actually just looks like you're looking up at the corner of the screen and you're not looking at the panel. So play around with the settings and the setup to make sure that it actually looks like you're giving good eye contact. I know that sounds bizarre because you're not, you're not in the same room and it isn't eye contact, but as someone who's been sitting as a judge, it does feel really odd if someone, if you feel like someone's talking to you, but they're actually looking up at the corner of the room, it looks like they're disinterested. Whereas when someone has got the camera set up, so it actually looks like they're giving you eye contact, you do feel like you're engaging. So I think that that's really important. And also, I think treat it as a real interview. If you were at a real interview, you would not be reading your answers off the screen <laughs> or off your phone or off your notebook. You would have to answer the questions without notes and without scripts. So don't think just because you're online that you can use a script because it's so obvious when someone's reading because their eyes move, <laughs> their eyes scan the screen and move back and forth. And it's, it's really obvious and off-putting. So um, I think sort of in addition to making sure that the eye contact set up well, also make sure that you're not reading off the screen and you are treating it like a real in-person interview, even though it's not. I think also, I think, 
some of the pitfalls are where people haven't done preparation. So I do not believe in scripting your answers. I don't think you should. I think where people script answers or where they don't prepare, if they don't prepare, they come out very rambling and like they don't know where they're going with the answers. But if they script, if the question's phrased in a slightly different way than they prepared, or if they lose their train of thought, you can just see that it derails their whole answer. Whereas if you have some bullet points of what you might say to this theme, regardless of how they phrase the question, you'll be able to answer it. And it also gives you points to say, so that if you lose your train of thought, you probably have still covered off two of the points anyway. So it's not it's not the end of the world. And that that's really, I guess, the sort of main mistake that I find people either over-preparing or under-preparing and therefore coming across as losing their train of thought and not being able to recover or not being able to get their words out because they're umming and eyeing. Fantastic advice. And so do you have any tips for approaching those really difficult um, interview questions? Absolutely. Prepare, prepare, prepare. (laughs) I think I mentioned it in a previous answer that I prepared for all of the difficult questions I could get my hands on. I actually have set up a little WhatsApp group. It's called Barristers to Be Community. And um, it's lots of people on the hunt for pupillage, all sharing their experience, sharing questions they've been asked. I think I uploaded onto that um, chat that all of the difficult questions that I ever came across and I had a little crib sheet. And so I'm asking them to add to the crib sheet. So there's just this big crib sheet of all these difficult questions. Prepare answers to them. Like I say, do not script answers, but have in mind what you would say to those sort of questions if you were asked them. Practice saying them out loud so that it sounds right. Because I think sometimes, again, if you bullet point things, you imagine how it's going to sound, but then when you say it out loud, it's not quite right. So I think if you prepare for the difficult answers by preparing what you're going to say, then practice you know, most people have got record function on their phone now or their laptop, just record, just speak and record what you're saying and see if it sounds good. If it doesn't tweak it, if it sounds fine, then leave it as it is. Um, And then practice, obviously, is that one. And then I think the final one is leave some room to think on your feet, because you can't, you can't predict everything, you can't prepare for everything. I am one of those people that really do like to prepare. I really do like to make sure that I'm in the best position that I can be to present myself well, to rise to the occasion, whatever it might be, whether it's interview or court. I think preparation is so important. But equally, you have to be comfortable in the knowledge that you can't prepare for everything. You don't know what they're going to ask you. But you nevertheless need to be able to go in, be confident and not be frightened to tackle something that you weren't prepared for. Because and I've seen this in the people that I've done mock interviews with. I don't think I've yet come across someone who couldn't answer a question, no matter how difficult it was. They found an answer to give. And I've certainly been in those situations where I've been asked something by a judge that I wasn't prepared for. But because I was prepared enough, I was able to find an answer. So I think that you do need to do all of your preparation and all of your practice. But you also do need to be comfortable in the knowledge that you might have to think on your feet and something unexpected might come up. Because, again, that is part of the profession. So you need to be comfortable with that. And I think those are my tips, really. So I think a practical suggestion is also... If you need a moment when you're asked a difficult question, ask for the moment. Just say, do you mind if I take a second to think about that? And that's fine because what they're looking for essentially is someone who can think and not just necessarily give an answer straight away and, and, you know, come out with something that's not well thought through. So they'll be absolutely willing to give you a moment to, to collect yourself and gather your thoughts. If you can feel yourself becoming very conscious of how long the silence has been, grab a glass or a bottle of water and take a sip. It gives you a little bit longer and it will help calm your nerves and it will give you a bit bit longer to think. If you still haven't managed to, to think of an answer, ask that they rephrase the question, even if you understood the question because again it just gives you a little bit extra time and the way that they rephrase it then might help you jig 
an answer in your mind. But as I've said, I've never come across in any mock interview that I've done or any situation that I've been in a time where an answer could not be found. So I think you have to rest in that knowledge as well that you will be able to come up with something. You just need to have faith in your preparation. That's really great advice. Um, just sort of reflecting on my own experiences. Um, I, I, would, I would also always have a pen and paper because sometimes like writing a couple of words or like a mini spider diagram would sort of help my brain think of something and be able to structure it so I don't know if if you've had any experience with that but that that certainly helped me as as, along with um some of the other tips that you've mentioned so I I think that's really good yeah absolutely I would definitely use a notepad uh, especially in one interview I was asked I think it was something like you've got 60 seconds to persuade us why we should be interested in your hobby so I asked for a moment and then I just quickly jotted down sort of three points and I made sure that I delivered those points. So, yeah, I, I've had experience of sort of taking a moment, writing a note and then answering. And I think that's a really good t- uh, tip and technique as well. Brilliant. And so imagine we get to the end of the interview and, you know, you've had the interview and you go home. Um, what would you do then? What are your tips for after the interview? So I think the first thing that I would do is if you're in person, get away from chambers to make sure that no one can overhear you Um, and then make a recording of the questions that you were asked and the answers you gave. You can, of course, write it down instead of actually recording yourself saying it. I just personally find that I speak quicker than I write. And so if I write something down, by the time I get to the last question, I probably can't remember what it was or what the answer was I gave. But if I record myself, I can pretty much recall what was asked and what I said in response. I would then make a note of any question that I was asked that I didn't actually prepare for and the answer I gave. And then I would also make a note of the interviewers, because if you're invited back to a second interview, you might be asked who interviewed you in the last interview. And if you don't know, then it it doesn't look like you took it very seriously. So that's my first sort of tip. And then my second tip is to take a break if you can. So I know that a lot of people during pupillage season will have back to back pupillage interviews. But if you can, even if it's half an hour, even if it's 10 minutes, just go for a walk watch a watch a film or Netflix or whatever you want to do read a book meet up with some friends go for a coffee whatever it is to kind of let you chill out a bit do that and I think it's really important because when you've just come out of the interview you're still very subjective and if you're like me you're going to have kind of be beating yourself up and thinking oh I should have said this or I should have done that and I don't think it's helpful in that moment I think there is a time for reflection I'll come on to that in a moment but I think that immediately after the interview you're not going to give an objective fair reflection it's going to be very subjective and emotive and, and kind of you're going to still be caught up in the moment so I do think you need to take a break to make sure that you're in the right headspace when you come to reflection but also because the build up to that interview, the emotional and sort of time consuming process that is pupillage, you will likely need the break as well for your own well-being. So definitely take a break. When you're then able and ready, reflect on the interview, reflect on the answers you gave. Were they good? Were you happy with them? Could you improve them? Reflect on your preparation. Was there anything that really threw you? Was there any question that actually you should have really been able to foresee coming up that you didn't? You know, how can you improve your preparation for the future? And then think about other things such as your delivery. How was your tone? How was your pace? Did you um and ah a lot? What sort of things can you improve about your presentation? And once you've had the time to reflect on all of those things, make a plan because as I've said, you may have another interview coming up and you may not think that the one that you just had went well, but that doesn't mean that you can't then improve in time for the next interview and smash that one. So I definitely believe in reflecting and then planning how you're actually going to put the improvements into practice because it will help you, whether it's in the next interview that you have lined up in a couple of days or weeks 
or whether it's this time next year when you're going through the process again. So I definitely think put a plan in place. And then the last thing is to accept it. What's done is done. It cannot be changed. You did your best in the moment. And, you know, whatever the outcome is, it was a learning opportunity and an experience for you to develop from in this profession. I mean, if you've done the BPTC, you'll know that there's obligations of continuing professional development. And so it would be naive to think that you're ever the finished product. You know, you're always going to be able to improve and things can always have gone better, really. In, in most circumstances, things don't go perfect. They may still go well, but they don't necessarily go to plan. And you need to be confident and comfortable in that because if you're a barrister and you go to court and you're unsuccessful and the judge just doesn't take any of your points, you can't come home and dwell on dwell on it. You can reflect on how it could have been improved. But if you sort of wallow in pity for too long, then you're going to have a knock on effect on your next case because you may have to go home and switch your mentality and prepare for the next case. So I think that there does come a point where you have to just accept what happened, learn from it and move on. So I think those would be my tips following the interview. Brilliant. And you know what? That's something that I haven't really focused on in, in this podcast and previous guests that we've had. Um, but actually looking at your Instagram page, it is sort of what prompted me to ask you that question. Um, because I think that we can often, you know, come out of the interview and then just relax and not do anything necessarily. But I think that it's really great that you've actually got a plan for what to do after the interview. And um, I just, yeah, and, and you've got some really amazing posts on your Instagram page, which which cover topics like that. So I would definitely encourage the readers um, to give Emmeline a follow at um, on her Instagram page. But yeah, that, this sort of brings us to the end of the interview now. Um, but before we let you go, where can listeners connect with you? You can connect with me on LinkedIn. It's Emmeline Davis. And that's where I mainly share my career progression and any successes that I have in my career. I also have my Instagram and that's where I tend to share more about my experiences, sort of my experience of pupillage applications, my experience of pupillage interview, also scholarship interviews and applications. I talk about that on my Instagram as well. What I sort of see for the future with my Instagram is in the coming months when people find out whether they've got pupillage or not, I'm going to start sharing how I'm preparing for pupillage. So in the hopes that I'll help give others ideas of how to prepare for pupillage. And in the long term, while I'm going through pupillage, I want to be able to share the experience that I have so that people who are considering a career at the bar actually understand what it looks like and, and what they can expect. Because even if you do a mini pupillage, you kind of just see through the keyhole because usually they're only a day or three weeks uh, or a week, sorry. So, you know, you don't get a, an awful long time with the person that you're shadowing to really get that insight. And also they can be quite costly. So, you know, you might have to use your annual leave or take unpaid leave from work. I, I had to take leave and it meant that I didn't get, I didn't get a holiday that year. But also there is expenses to it. So on at least two of the mini pupillages I did, I had to go and stay in hotels. I think it was about £200 a time that I stayed in a hotel. And then if you're in a hotel, obviously you have to pay for your food and your travel and all the rest of it. So it can start adding up. So I'm really about promoting access to the profession, especially for people from non-traditional backgrounds. And I think one of the barriers to that is the lack of transparency about what the profession actually looks like so I'm hoping to through my Instagram provide a bit of transparency really so yeah follow me on there if you want <laughs> fantastic um, and what I'll do for the listeners is leave a link to your LinkedIn and a link to your um, Instagram or your Instagram handle in the description box of the podcast so people can find your details um, really easily. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our discussion. I have loved the detail that you've gone into on the questions. I think it's going to be really helpful for our listeners and um, we'd love to invite, invite you back 
maybe once you've finished your pupillage just to kind of get your tips on pupillage as well because I think that that would be really interesting to hear um but yeah thank you so much Emily for coming on the show thank you so much for having me thank you and thank you to all of the listeners as well um thank you for tuning in and please do leave us a star rating and review on itunes um if you're able to because that would really help us reach more people um, and we'd love to hear some of your feedback and what we're going to be doing is reading out the um, best feedback um, and best comments in the next episodes um so yeah if you want to shout out on the podcast then um please do leave us a review but um until next time goodbye this episode is sponsored by the university of law what really sets the university of law apart from other universities is its belief that its students should learn in a realistic professional and contemporary context They focus exclusively on practice-based training and give students access to their extensive career service and jobs vacancy database as soon as they accept a place. Through the University of Law's pro bono programme, law students can hone their skills by working on real cases before they graduate. The University of Law offers a range of postgraduate legal training and master's degrees designed by qualified experts to help students advance at any stage of their career. Their courses are employment focused, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. Part-time and online study options are also available on many of their courses to help students work and study at the same time. The University of Law will help you reach your ambitions by delivering an outstanding academic and employment focused experience, honing key skills in a teaching environment based on real legal practice. As soon as you begin your studies with ULaw, you'll learn how to think and act like a lawyer. Whether your aspirations are in law or other fields, their courses will balance academic rigour and practical skills so your career starts from day one. To find out more about the courses they have on offer, just click the link in the description box of the podcast. To hear more of the Student Lawyers podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com.